Today's Coffee Connection is Sandra Navidi, University of Cologne alumna, international attorney, best-selling author, consultant, media contributor, and public speaker. She's the founder and chief executive officer of Beyond Global, an international strategic consultancy. My name is Honey Geist. Welcome to Coffee Connections. I had the opportunity to chat with Sandra about her best-selling book, Superhubs, Networks, and Networking. So important, but dreaded by so many, including me. Sandra also provided some insight on working in an international environment, how to navigate uncomfortable situations, and she shared her experience as a woman in a male-dominated environment. Have a listen. My name is Sandra Navidi. I'm an attorney admitted to practice law in the Federal Republic of Germany and in the United States. I've always worked in finance and in 2001 moved to the United States. Um, I worked as in-house counselor, general counsel at an investment firm. Then later I switched to investment banking and then ended up working with the economist Nuria Rubini during the height of the financial crisis before I started my own company Beyond Global in 2011, where I render macroeconomic and strategic positioning advice. I have so many questions, but I want to start with something very simple since my podcast is called Coffee Connections. If we ideally had this conversation, not virtually, but we would be able to sit in a German cafe, what would you order? I would probably order black coffee and marble cake. Marble cake. Oh, that sounds good. I'd like to start a little bit further back. So you do have a podcast also. So you're a fellow podcaster. So Ticked America. So basically what makes America tick. And one of the things that you did mention was that your first experience in the U.S. was actually in San Francisco. So where I'm located at the moment and that seeing the innovation up close would not have been possible in Germany at that point. And I wanted to know what inspired you early on to pursue an international career, or maybe that came later. How did you get to where you are now, in a nutshell? It's a long story, but I try to make it short. What you pointed out, my first stay in the United States was in San Francisco, where I saw this car in the shape of a shoe, and it was an basically a, a mobile commercial for a shoemaker. And I'd never seen that before. And that wouldn't have been possible due to regulations and laws and you know, everything in Germany. So the level of creativity and this American you know, kind of ideology of you are responsible for your own fate and anything is possible that you put your mind to the sky is the limit. That was very tangible and it was a formative experience. And probably if I had to pinpoint the moment that I fell in love with the United States, it was that moment. And for that reason, I think I was always drawn back to the United States also because I felt that at that time, it was always a step ahead of Europe, specifically Germany, in terms of innovation, in terms of trends, you know, the skateboard, the frisbee, the movies, TV shows at the time when I grew up, like Dynasty or Dallas, that was all super fascinating and a whole new world. And I was sucked into it. And so I studied at the University of California at Berkeley. I did a, a language program. That was my first time away from home alone. I feel I got to know the culture quite well. And in the following years, I always wanted to come back. 
and wanted to pursue my studies in the States, but for personal reasons, I was always drawn back to Germany. I started, studied law knowing that law is kind of limiting, at least at the time, because law is national. You can only practice in your home country. So that's why I earned a Master of Law degree in New York at Fordham in um, international banking and uh, finance law so that I would be able to make a transition into business and work in international law, at least, and in a transatlantic manner. I hadn't even passed my exam. I'd taken my exam, but I didn't have the graduation ceremony yet. I got an offer from Deloitte & Touche in Germany to take over the position of an attorney who went to maternity leave. She was from New York. And so it was the closest of a position in an international law firm that I could get in Germany at the time. And so I took it and thrived. And then in less than two years, got an offer from a client to work for this client and investment firm in New York and moved to New York in 2001. And the rest is history. In your book, Superhubs, you talk about the financial elite and how they essentially rule the world, rule the market. I have a follow-up question, but before I do that, I just briefly wanted you to explain what you mean by super hubs. I try to explain the financial system by way of networks, with network theory or network science. Everything in our world consists of networks, be it the ecology or we are networks, our brain is a network, and ant colony is a network. All networks function according to the same laws and dynamics. And they all consist of those little dots that you know from diagrams or pictures that are connected by pathways. And the nodes in the middle tend to be the most well-connected, and they have the greatest influence on a system, these central nodes. And they are called superhubs. That's not a term that I invented. I kind of borrowed it from network science. And you can sort of apply network science to many different disciplines, and I applied it to First of all, the financial system, and then also you can apply to our society. And I did both in that I said finance is not an abstract system. It's not just macroeconomics or quantitative theories or computer models. In the end, it's a human system. In the end, it comes down to people and their connections. And um, of course, obviously, the most powerful people and the wealthiest people in finance have the greatest influence. I wrote my book. Gosh, I think the first document I, I saved in 2012, so I started a long time ago. It was first published in German in 2016 and, and then in English in 2017. If I were to write it now, I would say that finance is still very, very powerful, but I would say that tech companies are um, sort of taking their positions a little bit. They're becoming ever more powerful. So now I, you could say that tech companies who consists of networks and work with networks, they are becoming the new super hubs. You did mention if you were to write your book now, that was my follow-up question. And actually, I wanted to ask you, in light of the pandemic and how that affected the economy and how that really affects society, how would you, or would you even consider the pandemic as talking about it in your book and um, how that affects the networks and the super hubs? Well, I actually did mention pandemics in my book because mm -hmm. the way that pandemics work, the dynamics of pandemics are the same as in any other complex self-organizing system. For instance, the way that bills, money bills, 
travel in society is the same way that viruses travel. So there are some very interesting eye-opening parallels. And yes, of course, I would mention it because it's very closely intertwined with all our networks, obviously our societal networks, our biological networks, the way that we are much more connected through traveling, through work, through globalizations on all these different levels. And that's one thing I say in my book, every system has the tendency to grow. So over time, every system becomes more interlinked and more complex. Up to a certain level, more connections within a system make a system more stable, you know, because it sort of balances itself out. But at a certain point, too many connections make a system instable or unstable because the more pathways there are, if there's a failure of one node, it can travel much more quickly through the whole system, which is sort of what we're seeing right now with the pandemics. And also one of the premises of my book is that every system becomes imbalanced over time because it becomes so interlinked. And then take nature, the ecology as an example, then corrective mechanisms, circuit breakers get triggered and try to balance out the system or create maybe create a new balance, but balance the system. And in finance and in our human system, I think humans have been too smart for their own goods, especially in finance, have they have disabled corrective mechanisms. What do I mean when I say that? Our system has become very imbalanced, as evidenced by growing inequality, that is income, wealth, and especially opportunity inequality. And instead of the system balancing itself out, you can see it's getting much more lopsided over time because people disable corrective mechanisms. The financial crisis, which could have been a catalyst for change, for correction, actually, especially, so another topic, but through Federal Reserve policies, monetary policies has exacerbated inequality. What we're seeing right now with the pandemic, with social unrest, we're seeing monopolism, monopolistic structure of corporations is becoming ever more extreme. And at the top of that pyramid are the tech companies that I mentioned before, like Amazon, who started out with books, then went into all sorts of household you know, goods. Now it's going into financial services. It's disrupting pharmacies. It's going into all areas of life. So I don't know exactly where it's going. All I can say is that our system is becoming so much more imbalanced. So if I were to write my book right now, I couldn't even help but mention the pandemic and especially also the social unrest, also two dynamics that tie into each other and exacerbate each other. Your career at this point is quite global. You do actually, in addition to being a lawyer in the United States, you can also practice law in Germany. And so your company is called Beyond Global. Now, I have kind of an idea what that means, but what does Beyond Global mean to you and how important is your transatlantic perspective? Yeah, I don't have an outpost in space just yet. But a decade ago, when I founded my company, I felt that we were moving beyond the paradigm of globalization already. And because globalization was a trajectory that we were on anyway, and it was on autopilot, but other issues that were either driven by or resulting from globalization, like inequality, like you know the growth paradigm, like the power of networks, 
and this monopolism that I mentioned earlier, those were already building up. And so that's why I called my company Beyond Global. And that's why I was sort of on the lookout for these future developments. I, coming from, from Germany now, living in the United States, I can't help but whenever I, I think about anything that's, that's relevant socially, politically, economically, I can't help but compare it to Germany or kind of have that transatlantic viewpoint. And I was wondering how, how it shaped your career, how you, when you look at, and you're now a commentator oftentimes in, in German media, so you are oftentimes the expert in your field, but also the expert for America and for that transatlantic experience. So I guess there is not really a question in what I just said, but no, I just I, know what you mean. I just wanted to see what, what your perspective is and how that really shaped you career-wise, but then also as a person. Well, I've always been very curious and interested in other cultures and eager to learn. And my personal feeling is that you can learn something from anybody and going to foreign countries and experience foreign cultures can only be an enriching experience. And I feel that's what it was in my case. I feel a wide angle perspective has been very important for my career, but also now for my for the services that I render for my clients. And especially in today's world where, you know, we can all kind of choose our little echo chambers and everything is separated into silos and everybody lives in bubbles. And so perceptions, ideas tend to self-perpetuate. And we are, as human beings, have a hard time disrupting ourselves. And I feel that's becoming more and more important, especially now that we're seeing you know, deglobalization and people just trying to surround themselves with people and ideas that already confirm what they're already thinking, you know, confirmation bias. So I feel it's very important. It's a service that one can do. I feel oftentimes I'm not reinventing the wheel with anything that I say. I just connect the dots and put them in context. And because we're living at a time where the challenge is not getting information, we suffer from information overload. The challenge is to determine what is relevant, what is correct, what is credible, what is true, what is a fact even, you know, the most basic things. And I feel that um, the diversity of experiences and the transatlantic or international perspective definitely help. Oftentimes, you have individuals who practice law and are able to practice law in one country. You're able to do that in both. And you studied in Germany, actually, the University of Cologne. That's how we connected because Eva Bosba from the University of Cologne Liaison Office in New York connected us. So I wanted to mention her uh, here as well. I was wondering what the similarities and maybe the differences are in uh, studying law in those countries, but then also practicing. On a side note, Eva is great. Yeah, so studying law in Germany was very hard. Not so much the substance, but the process by which you have to discipline yourself. Studying in America was a walk in the park, really was a piece of cake. I had never taken a multiple choice test before. <laughs> um, I never, I never even heard of an open book exam. <laughs> like what? Um, so I found that was, I mean, 
of course, I only only did a master of law degree, so it was just a year. So studying was easier in the States and the exam was easier. I have to say that I always practiced international law. I always practiced cross-border. And so I practiced with other attorneys who were also international. And I feel there's a certain etiquette and style of communication and interaction when you do that. And a lot of it, of course, even at the time was via electronic media, computer, phone. And so I can't really say what the difference is. I think generally in business, the main difference is that Germans are very direct. They don't beat around the bush. They don't like something. They say it out, outright up front. That sometimes shocks Americans. Americans are much more, you know, this brief is so well written. It's really eloquent. And thank you so much for all the work that you have us. Blah, 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 blah. But perhaps maybe have you thought of we could insert or maybe it's very much, I feel it's also the British approach, Anglo-Saxon approach. So um, if I had to caution Germans, say, try to be as diplomatic as possible, because I think I shocked my colleagues, even being aware of it when I actually came to the United States. I, I think I probably was very, you know, efficient, direct, clear cut which is not always um, the most feasible approach. No, I, I also notice that I am very German when it comes to that. So when you, are you, did you adapt and then you really blend in to the American system now? And when you go back to Germany, the German, or is there kind of a little bit of both in you now when you work with your colleagues? I would say if you are go to a foreign country, no matter which one, I think you have to adapt. Um, to this day, I still try to learn English, improve my English, learn new vocabulary, still work on my grammar. Sometimes I feel I know neither German nor English 100%. Mm. My, my German also sometimes is choppy. I don't have an accent, but oftentimes I can't think of the right words or I don't even know if certain English terms, if they are Germanized, do Germans now say mergers and acquisitions, or is this something I have to translate? Things like that. And then also culturally, you have a much easier time if you adapt. Nevertheless, of course, stay authentic. But when I come to Germany now, I feel I get some leeway. I'm not American, but I'm not really German. I'm the German who lives in America. Mm -hmm. So my appearance or maybe some idiosyncrasies are forgiven more easily. As if I'd always lived here, I think one of the main differences between Germany and America is that America is much more individualistic. Referencing back to the car in the shape of a, a boot, things that you can think of, that you can do in America, that you know nobody will hold you back. And on the contrary, people will applaud you on it. Germany is much more adapted. The nail that sticks out gets nailed down. I do feel, though, having lived abroad for 20 years, It's getting better here. Germany has also opened up more and younger people more. Well, it's globalization. They're more international. You mentioned networking. And since that's also the theme of your book, everyone says you have to network and networking is important. How do you actually network? What are strategies to effectively network and not just network, but then keep your network alive, especially for you? You're very mobile. You live in a very global world and you have contacts all over the place. So how do you network and how do you keep your connections? 
networking is hard work. It's not always fun. I don't always feel like it. I have to kind of motivate myself. And when you start out, it's a learning curve. I knew very little about networking because I came to New York and sort of was caught in 9-11 and I didn't know a single person in New York. I had to start from scratch. I had to proactively reach out and without even realizing it, try to build a network because I, you know, I had no social infrastructure and I had no friends. I knew a few colleagues, but I had no professional network. So I think I tried hard. It's a little bit of hit and miss. And also you have to learn to take rejection. Not everybody who you approach will like you, will react positively to you. So I think when you start out, also networking is based on social capital. Social capital is goodwill that we build with other people over time, be it through favors that we do for them or work or just even kind gestures that people remember. I think the secret of success for networking is to not ask for things, but to try to make yourself useful, try to leave people with a good impression of you, especially when you're junior and you don't have that much social capital to give. Because I've heard from people like, I'm so junior, what could I give to Warren Buffett? And just as an example of a very, very senior person, of course, a favor that Warren Buffett would do for you would have much greater value than probably anything that you could do for Warren Buffett. But, you know, it's a learning process. I would say, you know, I'm an introvert, so it's not easy for me. And even now that I'm fairly senior, uh, to this day, sometimes I feel very reluctant to go into a room, say it's a party, a reception, where I know I don't know anyone. And yeah, that's just an uncomfortable situation. I've been there many times at receptions. and It's just awkward. And it's hard work. You know, I have to think like, what can I say? And, and then maybe one conversation hasn't gone so well. So now you need to move on to the next people and try to reinsert yourself. I mean, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. But the good news is that over time, you build relationships, you come away with friends. Like many people that I've met through work over time have become work friends and then like real friends. And because you've known them so well through so many different circumstances and experiences, those shared experiences bring you even closer. So in the end, what comes out of it is good, but like anything in life, you know, the things worth doing are worth doing well and it it takes an investment of time and effort. Also, you need to earn the trust of people. Trust isn't just given as an advance. You have to earn trust. So that's also why it takes time. I actually had that question about communication and specifically for me is how your communication has changed now that you're more in the spotlight in German media, U.S. media, you give more interviews. Why don't you give me your perspective on communication? I think communication skills are amongst the most important skills, especially in these times. And I think how to deliver a message, how to convey your narrative, how to convince people, how to get attention in this attention economy is super important. And I would like to point out that over a decade ago, I remember it as if it were yesterday in 2009, I was traveling with my then boss, the economist Nouriel Roubini, to Davos, the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. And we were invited to a small dinner of big wigs, like say 14 people around a table one of those dinners where it goes around the table and everybody has to say something interesting, important. And you know the feeling when 
you know, the, it gets closer and closer. And that's anxiety felt, inducing for me. I felt terrorized. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything to say. I didn't want to speak up. I was dying. So I said something very, very short, dying in the process. And then said, and the rest of my speaking time, I donate to my boss, Nouriel Rubini, because he has much more interesting things to say than I do. That was 11 years ago. And let me tell you, it's been hard. Public speaking is the most fear-inducing of all activities. People, I think it's ahead of the fear of dying. But if I can learn it, everybody can learn it. So you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone and just keep on trying. And, you know, you will bump. You will have some embarrassments. You will, you know, be mortified. So how could I have said that? I could have said that so much better. And I could have said that in a much better way. But you will learn it. You have to see it as a learning experience. The earlier you start, the better. So I think that's super important. And that's something that people need to focus on early on. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. I watch your interviews and you sound so eloquent and everything put together. And I'm glad that you, that you say that it's a learning process. You don't just step out. And I assume like whenever Obama speaks, for example, I'm just in awe how everything comes out so perfectly and how he conveys his ideas. And sometimes for me, it's intimidating, but it's nice to hear. And it's good to hear from someone like you, who's um, did a lot of talking also in the media, that it's a process and you have to learn it and you have to sometimes stumble and fall to get to where you're now. And one of the, and like you mentioned Obama, some people just have the gift of the gap and they're natural performers. I'm not one of them. But I think one of the hardest things to learn in public speaking is to be authentic. Like when I look at my TV appearances from 10 years ago, uh, it's cringeworthy because I was trying so hard to make a good impression and you know, have good posture and speak very clearly. And it came across as sort of the way that I look at it now as fake. And the more natural you are, even if you stumble, even if you have to start over, even if it's not perfect, it's 10 times better than being inauthentic and being artificial. And that's also something that one should strive for. But that comfort, being yourself, comes with experience. Mm -hmm. I've seen a few interviews with you, and in most cases, you have male interviewers. And in your world, it's very male dominated, especially like law and business uh, still. And so I wanted to know from you what your perspective is as a woman in your field. And also if you have some advice for young women who are interested in going into law, going into the business world and founding their own companies. Two questions. What's your experience? And then what kind of advice would you give young entrepreneurs, young students who are about to pursue their career? I would say that for women, it's definitely more difficult. My own experience, I mean, it's very hard to say. I feel in many respects, it's been a disadvantage. And then in some respects, it's been an advantage. You stick out by your appearance alone. People may remember you more easily. They may be more willing to take your call. It may be easier to get a foot in the door. On the other hand, I mean, to this day, I have to fight harder for respect. 
if a guy with a suit and gray hair and glasses comes into a room, he gets respect right away, whereas any woman is subject to subconscious biases, not just from men, but also from other women. And I don't feel attractiveness is so much a hindrance as femininity. If a woman is very feminist in a sort of stereotypical way, that usually is interpreted as weakness. So that's why many women who adapt become a little more quote unquote masculine, like one of the guys. You can't be pretty and smart. Exactly. <laughs> and I've actually, I've, I've heard that so often in an ironic way. Oh, you're yeah. yeah. Um, but I feel it's something that um, men have a hard time to this day reconciling because it's also sort of threatening. It's, mm. It makes a woman very powerful. And so I'm not particularly optimistic, specifically looking into, for instance, Silicon Valley and venture capital. Um, this is a young generation. They've grown up with sisters and mothers who were professionals and very smart and successful. And they still have these biases. I mean, there are very few women and actually recently women have been leaving venture capital, the venture capital industry, specifically in tech. And I think that's not a fight that can be won. It needs to be kept on fighting. And so that would also tie into the advice that I would give women is that it's not going to be a straight line. For instance, if I were to advise a man it would be much more clear cut and more easy because it's just so much more easy for men to network. Like I always like to point out, men can go out after work for a drink, like the boss with a... Don't have to worry guy. about any implications and um, what to do. Gossip, making the wrong impression. Even if you have nothing to hide, you know, being seen by a colleague and looking guilty. And then, of course, in the Me Too era, many senior men are reluctant to mentor young women. So advice that I would give women would have to be very individual. It would have to be rendered on an individual basis. It very much depends on the woman, on the environment, the type of firm. Is it more progressive? Is it more conservative? What kind of colleagues does she have? What are the specific dynamics? To sort of get a feel because there are fewer boilerplate recipes or mechanisms that you can point out for women because it is harder to this day. I have a lot of the questions that I had answered. I was wondering if you had maybe something that you wanted to mention, maybe any projects that you're working on, anything that you would like to highlight. As a reaction to Super Hubs, my book, I got two main reactions, or basically I should say, my book Superhubs has two main threats. One is like a social critique, how these networks, these elite networks form and their impact on society, which isn't always positive. And the second thread is, I had to sort of explain how human superhubs become human superhubs. How do they move to the center of networks? So I anecdotally explained how superhubs is human centers of networks, how they build connections. The reaction that I got to the book, 99% of the time was, yes, these, these super hubs are horrible and these elite networks are so bad for society. How can I become a super hub? That's what <laughs> everybody wanted to know. So it's very appealing to people to be well connected. And obviously everybody wants to be successful. And now with all these uncertainties in the system, all these external disruptions, 
those questions seem to become more pressing. I can't even tell you how many requests, how many messages I get on LinkedIn asking me for advice and mentorship. And I, I don't even have the capacity to respond. Everybody who's ever written to me and listening, please forgive me. I just cannot respond to every inquiry. But that has sort of led to my second book, which I've been writing for a while now, and I, I need to get it finished. That basically started a little differently on how to become a super hub, not a self-help book, but kind of also a roadmap with a lot of research, how to adapt to the digital economy, essentially, which is now on, you know, a, a fast trajectory, even faster than before with Corona and everything. So how should people position themselves? What skills are going to be in demand? What are the future professions other than tech that are going to be in demand? So to give people some help and some advice in advance of how to brand themselves, all these things that people ask me, I kind of put together in the context of the changing nature of work to render assistance to people. I, especially since you do have so much to do, I really wanted to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Again, I have to thank Eva Bosbach, the liaison director of the University of Cologne office in New York. Thank you so much, honey, for having me. It's been an honor and pleasure to have been on your podcast. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And thank you also to Eva Bosbach. And, and finally, what are the ways people find out more about you? Is there one address that people can go to where they can find everything? Where are you where people can find you and find out more about you? Well, thank you for pointing that out. I've had the privilege of having been an official LinkedIn influencer. So please follow me on LinkedIn. I post a lot of professional and we'll going forward, we'll post more of a professional advice column there, taking it in advance from my book, from the research of my book. And when it comes to news, finance, and politics, I post a lot on Twitter. More social stuff I post on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, and everything can be found on my website, beyondglobal.com. Also, I have a media tab where you can find all my media appearances, and you can sort by English and German, and you can also read about my book and whatever else service I render. This was my Coffee Connection with Sandra Navidi. You can find more about Sandra and her work at beyond-global.com. All content is created and edited by me, Hani Geist. If you would like to get in touch, send an email to podcast at dad.org. Stay safe, healthy, and well. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you at the next coffee break.